Good morning. We'll be reading from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. today. Good deal. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to see so many folks here. If you're joining us online, thank you for spending your morning with us. Uh, Now, we are in a study of the book of James, all right? And over the last couple weeks, we've learned a few things. If you open up and you dig into the beginning of James, it says, I, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He introduces who he is. And last week, we actually walked through some of his faith story, how he got to be uh, not only just the half-brother of Jesus, but also now someone who would claim, I am a servant of the Lord. And so uh, we saw that James grew up with Jesus, right? He was his half-brother. Imagine growing up with God as your brother. James, why aren't you more like your brother? Oh, that kid would get beat. I'm just telling you, right? Grew up with Jesus as his brother, and what, what got a little weird is that when Jesus started doing his public ministry, their relationship started to shift a little bit, right? Because not only is he just the brother you grew up with, that you wrestled with, that you competed with, but now he's telling people that he's God. And so uh, we saw that James struggled pretty hard with this. In fact, most of the family struggled with this, right? As Jesus would go and he was preaching and teaching and casting out demons and healing and doing all these different things, So that his family showed up to try and seize him or to take custody of him because they thought he was out of his mind. And as Jesus continued doing these amazing things, people started coming from all over the place. And so there were huge crowds that were filling the homes that he was going into to the point where he couldn't even eat because there were so many people in that space. And so his family's trying to rescue him. We see that he starts getting into some of these conversations with religious leaders and starts debating with them. He's very clearly sharing, I am the son of God. I have authority in the things that I'm saying. And his family is really, really wrestling with this. 
And eventually we see that James and his brothers go on to rebuke uh, Jesus. They're like, man, you're doing all this stuff in these little dinky towns. Like you're in, in rural communities. Like you want to you wanna build an audience. You want to get big. You want to be known. You want your disciples to see how awesome you are. You need to go to the big cities. And eventually Jesus does. He goes to the bigger cities. He continues doing ministry. And eventually Jesus is arrested and he's tried and he's killed for doing the very things that James and his brothers are mocking Jesus for. And we saw that after Jesus died and resurrected from the dead that he actually went and talked to James. Nothing like eating a fish sandwich with your dead and resurrected brother, right? And that changed things for James. At that point, Jesus was no longer just his brother, but Jesus was now his savior. He was his Lord. And we see that James goes on to become a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he's not even just a pastor of the church of Jerusalem, but he's one of the key pillars, one of the key leaders of the early church that is now spreading. And so uh, James introduces who he is, and he's introducing who he's writing to. He's writing to the 12 tribes who are in dispersion in uh, all across the area, right? There are Jewish Christians, Jews, that uh, put their trust and faith in Christ that are now being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And so they've been pushed out of Jerusalem. They've been pushed out of their home. They are now scattered all around the region. And this is who James is writing this letter to. And the first thing that he says is, consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about trials. We've talked about what trials are. We've talked about the fact that really trials produce in us something that nothing else can. Endurance and perseverance and maturity. That trials create in us what nothing else can. And so that's why when James says, consider it all joy when you face trials, he's saying, you should be joyful. You're growing. You are flexing your muscles of maturity. You are becoming more like Christ because of what you're going through. Now, most of us tend to get mopey, right? This is horrible. I don't want to go through this. This doesn't feel good. James is saying, be joyful because it's an opportunity to lean in to God, right? And last week, we talked about this, this carryover from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you can't have two masters because you're going to love one and hate the other. So you can either love God or you can love your money, your wealth, your stuff. And James, who didn't believe a word his brother was preaching when he taught that message, is now writing it himself. He's like, in your trials, you can either depend on God or you can depend on yourself. You can depend on your stuff. You can depend on your skills, your abilities, your knowledge, because trials are incredibly difficult, and trials are rough, and that's why we are studying the book of James. Because James is writing this letter to a hurting church. James is writing this letter to a people group that feel oppressed, they feel that they uh, have been scattered all around. Many of them are poor, they're broke, they're trying to make ends meet, they're trying to learn a new culture, they're trying to potentially learn a new trade or a new job so they can support themselves. And it's really easy when things get difficult for your faith to go underground, isn't it? It's really easy for the public to no longer be easily seen. And so that's what James is getting after. 
Right? James has gone from being Jesus' brother to being uh, concerned for his brother to doubting his brother to mocking his brother to rebuking his brother to believing that his brother isn't just his brother but his Lord. To a pastor, to a key leader. James ends up dying for his faith in Jesus. And James has a view of Jesus that none of us will. He's viewed Jesus through every lens that you possibly can and his perspective is so incredibly unique, and that's one of the reasons we continue to dig in to this book. So this morning, we are going to pick up in James chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 12. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you'd open up James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12. If you've got your phone, if you've got a tablet, you can go to insidescc.org. You can swipe to take a notes, uh, take notes tab. You can fill out whatever notes uh, may come up. It's got the scriptures in there. So James 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed are the ones who endure trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Right, so James has this first tie to the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you can't love two masters. And in trials, you can either lean into yourself or you can lean into your stuff. We're seeing again, James says, blessed are those who... Right In Jesus' sermon, he said, blessed are those who face persecution. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those. And we're seeing this carried over. So James says, blessed are those who endure trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to him. This is a, a standard theology in the Jewish faith. That when you remain faithful to God, you are what is called Blessed. And so James, writing to Jewish believers, uses language that they would have been very familiar with. And he's saying, you know what? Those who have the wisdom to see that through their difficulty, God forges character, they're gonna get the crown of life. Those who in the face of difficulty remain faithful to God, they're gonna get the crown of life. In the Bible and in ancient Mediterranean culture, crown was, uh, it was very, very important. There was a a lot of symbolism around that, right? It was a symbol of victory, right? A victor put on a victor's crown. It was an ornament of honor. It was a symbol of royalty. And so James says that when you've stood tall during a trial, you will receive a crown of life. Well, what is it? A crown of life, it's, it's eternal life, right? For you and I, If we live in the will of God as faithful and loyal servants, when we face trials and we continue to remain faithful to him, we will receive eternal life. Why? Because he loves us and he's given it to us. It says that God promised it to those who love him. Right? Blessed is the one who remains faithful in trials. They have stood the test and will receive the gift of eternal life which has been promised to them because they love him. So now we're going to pivot. All right, we've been talking about trials for a couple of weeks, and James makes this quick left turn from trials into temptation. Verse 13 says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. For it is common for humans to attribute difficulty to someone else. Correct? We see in Genesis Chapter three, Adam and Eve, they eat fruit from a tree that they're told not to. 
And when God finds them, they're hiding, right? It says that they're shameful because they've realized that they're naked. It's a different story. But God asks, what happened? And Adam says, you know what, that woman that you created for me, yeah, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Adam passes the blame, not only to Eve, but also on God, right? That woman that you created, she gave it to me and I ate it. So then God goes to Eve and he says, all right, Eve, what happened? She's like, the serpent deceived me and I ate of the fruit. In similar fashion, what happened? That creature you created deceived me and I ate from the fruit. You see, neither of them take responsibility for his or her actions. They pass the blame on each other and ultimately onto God himself. And so what James is doing here is putting the responsibility back on us. He says, you know what? God is so good, so pure, so holy that evil doesn't tempt him. It's impossible for God to be tempted, and if God can't be tempted, God can't tempt you. So if God is so good, so pure, so holy, that evil doesn't tempt him, God is so good, so pure, and so holy that he won't tempt you. God can't be tempted, which means he won't tempt you. So who are you to blame God in your temptation? Proverbs 19.3, it says, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. We're really good at passing the blame on to someone else, aren't we? When we are literally ruining our own life, our heart rages against the Lord. Like think back to the last time you got busted for something. I got busted a lot as a kid was never involved in the criminal justice system, but I got busted by my parents like every two seconds. And I think back to the last time you got busted for something. Could have been when you were a kid, could have been as an adult. Did you pass the blame? What happened at work? Oh, well, so-and-so. Or in your house, maybe a sibling. Evidence of your maturity in Jesus, evidence of your refinement in Jesus is how quickly you take ownership of your own sin. That hurts. And it doesn't feel good, right? But evidence that you are growing and maturing and being refined by Jesus is how quickly you take ownership of your sin, right? When a brother or sister in Christ points something out that they are seeing in you, when multiple people are bringing out the same thing. They're saying, man, we're, we're seeing this in you. How quick are you to own it? Or how defensive do you get and do you pass the blame? James is clearly telling us where temptation doesn't come from. And so now we're gonna talk about where it does come from. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Right? It starts with deception, and then it moves to desire, and then it moves to disobedience, and then it moves to death. That's what James is saying here. Now, I am not much of a fisher. Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin. We have more lakes probably in one square mile than the state of Indiana. I grew up 11 blocks from Lake Michigan. I've been fishing like three times, 
took a bluegill off and had it like stuck in my hand and said, I'm out, right? I'm not doing this ever again. I'm not much of a fisher, but the original language uses language common to fishing because what's translated from the Greek as drawn out is also translated lured. Lured, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Church, here's the deal. Someone's fishing for you. Somebody is fishing for you. That's what James is saying here. You're not tempted by God, but if you're being tempted, that means there's a tempter. That means somebody is actively fishing for you. The enemy is not some passive spectator. The enemy is much more aggressive than that, much more intentional than that. There is someone who wants to distract, derail, and destroy you. 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be sober-minded and be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Here's the deal. The enemy is an amazing fisher. So let's look at this. Most of us, when we think of temptation, we think of it like this. How many of you enjoy fishing? All right, we got some fishers over here. I went and bought a fishing pole yesterday. I think I've got a new hobby. It's Paw Patrol, and it was 10 bucks, all right? Most of us, when we think of temptation, this is what we think of, right? We think of something like this. Right, the enemy's out there, the enemy's fishing for us. But nobody in their right mind is about to clamp down on a big sharp metal hook, are they? Heck no. Even fish aren't stupid enough to bite down on this. So what do you gotta do? You gotta pretty it up, yeah. So what do you go fishing with? Yeah, you go fishing with bait. That was a good thing I got some worms in here. There's one. Nope. I should have looked. There's one. Is green. Now this worm, according to the package, is both sour and sweet. Its flavor, green. But that's a color, not a flavor. When it comes to a gummy worm, that's a flavor too. Right? That looks a little better, doesn't it? Think I could catch some fish with a worm on the hook? Could I catch any of you with a worm on the hook? Anybody in here want a sweet and sour gummy worm? Yeah, we got some hands going up. That's what I'm talking about, right? You see, the hook's not quite as apparent as it once was, right? It's hidden a little bit. What's it hidden with? It's something we desire. For some of you, this is not appealing whatsoever. But for others, oh, heck yeah. You get me in a movie theater, I'm gonna pound a bag of these bad boys, right? Now, some people like to fish with worms. I've also heard that other people like to fish with minnows. So I've got some of those too. Because again, everybody's a little different. So I went and I got some redfish of the Swedish variety. They're from my people, right? So now we got a fish on the hook. And sometimes you can catch a big fish with a little fish. How many of you are tempted by a Swedish fish? Maybe you didn't want the sweet and sour, maybe you just want the Swedish fish, right? 
Yeah, sometimes it looks a little like this. Sometimes it looks a little different, though. Maybe it's not a gummy treat. Maybe it's a 20, right? Put that on and not stab myself this service. What about now? How many of you want the 20? We got more hands than we did for the gummy worm. We got more hands than we did for the Swedish fish because some of you don't like Swedish things. There's a 20 on here. It's a 20. But you know what a 20 is good for? Buying you like two gallons of gas, right? You could buy lunch after the service with a 20. You could get Netflix for what, two months? You could go to the movies for a 20. You could do some things with a 20, right? That's enticing. I think for most of us, this is the hook that tends to get dangled in our face, isn't it? Because the more of this that we have, the more powerful we are, the more we are, the more people look at us. Right now, some of you are like, why on earth am I sitting at church when I could be at work making more of this? Now, honestly, you're looking at a large man holding a child's fishing pole with a 20 attached to it. I don't think any of you are truly tempted at all. Because sometimes in life, you see things and you know exactly what it is, right? You ever get an email from a king in Nigeria who says you just won a million dollars? I have. Have I ever been tempted to respond? Yeah, with a lot of fun things to the king of Nigeria. The reality is most of us, when we look at temptation, it doesn't look this clean, right? It was one thing at a time, right? It was a Swedish fish, it was a gummy worm, it was a 20, right? I think for a lot of us, though, temptation starts to look like my really cool hat, right? Check this bad boy out. It's not just one thing, it's multiple things. And no matter where you walk to, those things are there. They make real annoying noises. And no matter where you turn your head, and no matter how you direct your eyes, it is in your face. Take this medication, it will make you feel good. Take care of all your problems, you won't feel a thing. Drink from this can, you'll have a good time. Get more of this, you're gonna be a king in your own kingdom. Buy this product and it will take care of every problem you have. Now most of us would say, I'm not stupid enough to wear a hat that looks like this. Good. We are stupid enough to have a hat that looks like this. You know what, this morning I checked the weather to find out what time it was supposed to rain and before I even got to the weather, I was greeted with an ad for women's bathing suits. Dead serious. What were my motives? To see when it's gonna rain. What lure was dropped in the waters that I'm in right now? An advertisement I didn't even go looking for. That hat, as stupid as it looks, is our everyday reality. And there are hooks dropped all throughout the ocean we're swimming in and we have no control over it. Now as somebody that grew up in 1980s, early 90s, I'm privileged to have grown up without the internet. 
I got the internet at a young age, but my childhood was not shaped by the internet the way that kids' childhoods are shaped by the internet today. And so I have this interesting perspective where I know what it's like to go outside and play all day because there was nothing inside that was enticing me to sit there. The thing though is I think most people, when we hear the word internet, we're like, young people. Here's the deal. You know what the largest demographic of Facebook users is in the world? 55 to 65, which is why no young people are on Facebook anymore. 55 to 65. Every single one of us is lured in the same waters. The lures are different, but we're all in the same waters. There is a documentary that came out a couple years ago, and this isn't necessarily like a tech talk, but this documentary, it's called The Social Experiment, and it examines social media and online marketing. I'm not telling you go home and watch this, but some of the things that I heard people say in this really stuck out to me. The first was, if you are not paying for the product, you are the product. There are only two industries that call their customers users, illegal drugs and software. This one, we are training and conditioning a whole new generation of people that when we are uncomfortable or lonely or uncertain or afraid, we have a digital pacifier for ourselves that is kind of atrophying our own ability to deal with it. Tristan Harris, a former design ethicist at Google said that. Our everyday world is not a Paw Patrol fishing pole. It's not a really ugly hat with a bunch of junk sewn onto it. The temptation that we face is being crafted in a way the generations before us never had to deal with. Giddy up. This is why we're studying the book of James. This is why we are talking about trials. This is why we are talking about temptation because temptation is in your face in a way for all of us that it has never been before. Bait looks like it will feed you, but really it will trap you, right? That gummy worm would feed me, but you know what that hook would do to my lip? It looks appetizing. Looks like it's gonna feed you. Looks like it's gonna reward you, right? It's sour and sweet. But in reality, you're stuck. And the truth is that a fish is just a collection of appetites, correct? Fish have eyes, they have a mouth, they have a stomach, and you and I really aren't that different, are we? What's appealing and appetizing to our eyes, to our mouth, to our stomach? We have desires. And the reality is the one who is fishing for us knows our appetites. The one who is fishing for us knows our desires. Temptation is not an if thing, it is a when thing. So if somebody is fishing for you, you also need to know that there's different kinds of bait. Now I, again, am not a fisherman. I was a grown man at Walmart buying a child's fishing pole, a really ugly hat, some Swedish fish, and some gummy worms. 
But there are six different kinds of lures that fishermen used. I had to learn this. There's plugs, jigs, spinnerbait, spoons, soft plastics, and flies. Why? Because different kinds of lures attract different kinds of fish. What lures you may not lure me and vice versa. I've never been drunk a day in my life. I haven't. I could sit in a bar all day long and not once ever have the temptation to get drunk. I'm not going to a strip club though. I'm not walking into a bank vault filled with cash. What lures you may not lure me and vice versa. For some of us, it's a deep need to feel loved. It's why we get in really bad relationships. It's why we constantly post everything on social media so we can get hearts and likes and thumbs up. Our validation and our love comes that way. For some of us, it's the desire for ultimate control. For some of us, it's the desire to escape reality. For some, it's the desire to have more power. But if we are able to identify what lures us, we can more clearly see the temptations in front of us. For some of us, we have no idea what lures us. You know, we'd say, you know what? I'm actually doing pretty good. I'm not on drugs and I haven't robbed a bank. I'm gonna tell you this. Sometimes sin isn't just the wrong thing. Sometimes sin is loving good things in the wrong order. Sometimes it's loving good things in the wrong order. Marriage is an amazing thing. You start putting your marriage before God? That's sinful. You start worshiping your kids instead of worshiping God? That's sinful. There's a lot of good things that you can be devoted to that put in the wrong order get you in the same boat. So somebody's fishing for us and there's different kinds of bait. Maturity means we need to resist the bait. At the moment of temptation, each of us has the option, right? We have the choice and it's a critical one. We can either pursue the bait or we can pursue what God has called us to, right? A part of growing as a Christ follower, a part of flexing our muscles of maturity means that by God's grace and power, we get to choose God's best for us in our lives over and over and over again. It's habit. It's routine. When my wife and I first moved here, it was just the two of us, we did not have any kids, and we rented a house on West Washington Street, closer to downtown. We lived there for three years. So every day when I would come to work, I would get up, I'd get in my truck, I would drive here, I'd park outside these doors, walk out, walk into my office. When I was done, I'd walk out that door into my truck and I would autopilot back home. It was comfortable, it's what I knew. But three years after living here, my wife and I bought a house in a different part of town. We closed on that house the beginning of August. We had to be out of our rental the 1st of September, which means for a month we had two houses. So when I would call my wife and say, hey, I'm headed to the house, she would say, well, which one? When I would leave here, depending on what house I wanted to go to, I had to drive a different way. So instead of just jumping in my truck and autopilot straight down 44 so I could get home, as soon as I came to the intersection of 44 in progress, I had to decide, am I turning left to go to the new house or am I gonna autopilot straight to go to the old? 
the way we operate with temptation is just like this. It's just like this. Every day you have the choice. Are you going to autopilot into what you know, into what is comfortable, into what you have been willing to give into, or are you going to make a choice to turn left and go to a different destination? And that sounds absolutely horrible. It's like, I have no idea how to even do that. I'm gonna tell you this. I've been living in the house that I own now for seven years, and you know what I'm never an autopilot set to go do? Drive to the old house. Why? Because over and over and over again, I chose to go left at progress instead of going straight on 44. In your spiritual life, you're driving. Where are you driving to? What's your destination? Right, last week we talked about, well, are you asking God to send you to the wrong one? Sometimes God doesn't take you to a bad destination. What's the good destination that we need to be headed to? Right, temptation operates in the exact same way. James says that when we choose what is best for us, the more mature and complete we become. Verse 16, he says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift uh, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. Right, James says, don't give in, don't be deceived, but here's the deal. There's gonna be roadblocks, there's gonna be pitfalls, there's gonna be potholes that you are gonna hit along the way. You are going to screw up, you are going to fall short. The beauty of the gospel is that God loves you even and especially in your failures. God loves you in your failures. God knew what he was buying on the cross. Right? Every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights who never changes. God knew what he was buying on the cross. And that hasn't changed. 2,000 plus years later, it still hasn't changed. So if you're getting up every day and you're operating with the belief that God is absolutely disgusted in you, I want you to know that God's disgust for your sin was poured out on the cross. That hasn't changed. God is not disgusted with you. Right, this morning we sung uh, the old rugged cross. It was nasty. It wasn't hand planed and sanded down to 220. Didn't have a nice coat of lacquer on it. Heck no. This thing was beat up. It was rough. It was splintery. It was covered in other people's blood and flesh after they had died on it. The cross was gross. On the cross, Christ had nails driven through his hands, through his bones, through his nerves. He was crying out in agony. And then they lifted that cross off and they, they dumped it straight up. And most people believe that you were crucified really high up. The reality is most people were crucified at eye level so that people could walk by, mock you, and spit in your face. He was naked, why? So he would feel shame the way that Adam and Eve felt when they realized they were naked in the garden. The point of crucifixion is for you to suffocate. That's what it is. It's disgusting. But your body is pinned in such a way that your lungs start to fill with fluid. 
And so every time you're trying to breathe, you are literally gasping for as much breath as your lungs will physically hold. And the Romans said, hey, you know what? Instead of just having you hang by your hands, we're gonna put a nail in your feet. So now you have leverage to push yourself up so you can breathe longer. Which means every time he pushed himself up to gasp for a breath, a lightning bolt of pain shot through his spine and his extremities. The cross was disgusting. You know who's not disgusted with you? God. You cannot outsin the cross of Christ. You can't. There is no such thing as doing something too disgusting to God. Because God's disgust was poured out on the cross and Christ absorbed it all. That's the beauty of the good news. I'm aware how heavy that is. You can feel it in the room right now. You're all like, oh my gosh, this is brutal. Yeah, it was brutal. Here's the deal. It's never gonna happen again. It doesn't have to happen again. You have victory over that ever happening again. Why? Because Christ took it for you. Amen. God is not disgusted with you. God loves you. He's proud of you. Every day he's whispering, keep going, keep going, keep going. Oh man, I, I bit and I, I, I took the hook. All right, let's work on getting you untangled. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Every good gift comes from above. He's not like a shifting shadow who's gonna change his mind. Right, scripture says that when Christ died, he died for you while you were still sinners. Not when you had it all together, when you were complete, when you were perfect. Nah, man, when you were broken and beat up and jacked up, when you were disgusting, that's when he displayed his love for us while we were still sinners. Verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of all creation, right? By his own choice. We didn't do anything. We didn't prompt this. By his choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. Who's that? That's Jesus, right? He gave us new birth through Christ. Why? Because of his choice, that's how much he loves you. Why? So that we could be a first fruits, right? So we could be his handiwork, so we could be his prized possessions. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were holy and they belonged to God. And so if you were a farmer, you offered up the first of your crop, the first from your vineyard, the first from your field. If you had animals, you offered up the first born. If you had a kid, you offered up your first born to God. This was a big deal. We are the first fruits. We are the firstborn because of what Christ did for us. Church, every time the opportunity exists to take the bait, there's an opportunity to choose God's good for you. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? There's something better than what's on that hook. Are you aware of what baits you? We can't resist the bait if we don't know what tempts us, if we don't know what baits us. Can you spot the things that tempt you or have you grown comfortable with them in your life? 
Are you comfortable having things in your home, having things in your relationship, having things in your phone, having things in your search history? Have you gotten comfortable with these things in your waters? And when you get busted, are you blaming God for your temptation? Or are you actively driving to a better destination when given the choice? Do you know what God's good for you is? Are you in his word? Are you learning more about him? One of the most beautiful things in the scripture that we're talking about today has nothing to do with temptation, but about the fact that God never changes. That's his character. You learn that by reading his word. Who is God? He wants to tell you. Spend time with him and you'll learn more of who he is and what he's about and what he's for. Have you ever experienced freedom from an area of sin before? And once you're like, man, I, I've actually been delivered from an addiction. I've been delivered from, from anything. Good, that's motivation. Keep going. You know what it's like to feel freedom in that area? Imagine if you felt freedom in this area. Keep going. Keep driving to that other destination. You know, one of the biggest counterfeits of the enemy is that you are alone. What you're going through is alone, that you are dirty, disgusting, and therefore should be alone. But Christianity is not about independence. It is about dependence. In your trials, pursue God. Don't do it alone. In your temptations, flee to the gift that came from above, from the guy that never changes. You don't have to do this alone. The Christian life is a communal life. You weren't made to do life alone. You weren't made to follow Christ alone. You weren't made to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth alone. Jesus had 12 disciples There was a community. Scientists have proven that our will, the area in our brain where our will comes from, that that part of our brain is like a finite resource, which means eventually you're gonna run out. Well, I'm just gonna will my way to not do this anymore. Good luck. I clearly am not somebody that spends hours at the gym but I've been to a gym before and I've seen some dudes throwing like 275 up on a bench press. And you know what they have standing behind them? They have a spotter. Why? Because you start throwing reps of 275 up over and over and over and over again, your muscles are gonna get tired. And when you can't push that up anymore and you drop it, that's on your throat. Good luck breathing. You need spiritual spotters because our will is a finite resource. You're gonna run out of it. Just like your arms get exercised, eventually your will is gonna be on fire, right? You're gonna be like, oh my God, I can't breathe. I got a side ache. It's happening in your brain. You need a spiritual spotter. You need people in your life that are aware of the things that you struggle with. Accountability has such a horrible name in the church, but when reality, it's a beautiful thing. When you are in community with somebody, when life is not a competition with them, when it's not about being better than somebody else, when life is hard and you want to journey together with somebody else, when you're tired of hiding who you are, man, a whole new world opens up. And you experience grace in such a powerful way. There is beauty in confession with someone else. And I feel like it's something that a lot of churches today we've completely lost sight of. 
We're just buried in our phones doing me, 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 me stuff. James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds because it causes growth. Because it causes you to depend on God because it causes your muscles of maturity to grow. When you face temptation, know that it's not from God because he's too good, too pure, too holy to tempt you. Be on guard for the things that bait you. Know that someone is actively fishing for you. And even when you take the bait, know that God displayed his love for you, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God never changes. And because of that, God loves you. He's never disgusted with you. He loves you. He's proud of you, but he doesn't want you to stay where you're at. Let's pray. Father, thank you again uh, for James. Thank you for the way that you've used him, for the way that he was put into a family with Jesus, that he had a front row seat to everything, even when he didn't buy it. Thank you that, that you saved him that Christ's death on the cross changed his eternity forever, that, that because of the work of Christ that James was able to write a letter to the church that he pastored and that today we still get to glean wisdom from this letter. Father, I pray for those in trials, that they would lean into you, that they would see that endurance and perseverance are being grown, that, that maturity is being grown in them. Father, for those that are in a season of temptation, Pray that they would know it's not from you. That they'd be able to identify the things that are being used to try and lure them in, that are being used to try and bait them. And I pray for those that have fallen into temptation, that they would never see themselves as disgusting, but that they would see themselves as, as loved and clean and your kids that you're proud of, that you love, and that you pursue. And I pray this week we would all understand that God doesn't change, that he knew what he was buying on the cross and that that offer was good then and it's still good now, that we would live in light of what Christ did on the cross for us and that we would be bold in sharing what he did for others on the cross as well. Father, thank you for an amazing time together. I pray this was glorifying and honoring to you. I pray that we'd be a changed church because of our time together. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Man, it's been a privilege to be with you this morning. If you guys would help, it'd be a huge help.